0: Hey there, thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Uh, during the Easter season, I was, I was praying for each of you. I was spending some time just praying for our church corporately. And I sense the Lord saying to me that many of you are under tremendous spiritual pressure, challenges, obstacles in your life. And, and the truth is, if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to hit challenges. You're going to go through trials. The fact is, if you don't follow Christ, you'll still hit challenges and still go through trials. But the idea here is that the Bible gives teaching. The Bible gives, gives life-giving words that help you go through those trials well And not retreat, but to advance. But in order to do that, you have to be deeply rooted. You have to go deep before you can go high. Or else you just tumble over when the winds come. And so, Jeremiah is a book that teaches how you go deep in the midst of some very difficult circumstances. Today we're going to look at chapter 9, just a few verses there. What has taken place is that the little nation of Judah, which is a small little nation... Jerusalem and the surrounding area of southern Palestine is sandwiched between superpowers of the day. Assyria, though declining, has been the major superpower. Egypt often was very, very powerful. But also to the north, Babylon is starting to rise. The Medes and the Persians are starting to get their lives together. And so here is little bitty Judah wanting to be safe, wanting to be secure, wanting to keep its economy going. So what's happening is that they're not really looking to the Lord, they're looking to their neighbors. They're looking to these superpowers and say, who will protect us? Who will save us? And what's happening is it's fragmenting their society. It's destroying the the basis of truth. It's destroying the basis of what's right and what's wrong and, and who are we, basically. And so as we read this, we're going to read. It's not exactly a, a light reading. I'm not sure there is one in Jeremiah. But this one starts off with death. So you know right off, it's not incredibly cheerful. So I'd like for us to read this together. It's about six verses here. Chapter 9, verse, starting in verse 21. Let's read this together out loud. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord. The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So what happens when Judah is going through this is basically Judah, which had been a traditional society, becomes a fragmented society. In a traditional society, your family determines what's right, determines what's wrong. Your identity sets the course. You belong to your family. Your family belongs to you. Now, there are many really good things about a traditional culture in terms of security and consistency and all of that, but what if your family's dysfunctional? What if the issue of what they want for you doesn't have anything to do with who you really are? What if there's abuse and corruption in the family? You would probably not believe how many people have come to me and said I was sexually abused by a family member. That is rampant when family has so much control. So just to say, let's go back to traditional values and traditional family does not necessarily mean that we're going to be healthy, but it does mean this. That being in a fragmented society, you have to determine what your identity is. Identity is not determined or assigned simply by your family in a fragmented society. In a in a society like ours, where there's so many different ideas of what's true and what's what's false, of what's right and what's wrong, of uh, of identity and roles and all of this, there is a there's a, a chaos in, in a way to decide. Who am I? Do I matter? Am I significant? Am I distinct from other people? Is there anything of value? Is there anything of worth in my life? And so we live in a society in which our family doesn't determine that for us. We're determining who we are ourselves. And so it's so interesting when you switch out of this traditional into this fragment. And in some ways, I'd like you to hear me, in some ways it's easier for the gospel to go forth in a fragmented society. Because what better thing can we offer but identity in Jesus and the good news of being loved by God even though you're broken and evil and, and sinful. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that we live in a day of a fragmented society, but it is a thing in which we have to begin to understand how our identity formed. Um, let me get you on page with me about what identity is. Identity has to do with, from the time you're a little child, you're trying to figure out, who am I? And so what you're really looking for is a consistent sense of self. But not only consistent, but you want a meaningful sense of self. Something that defines me but also tells me that I have something of worth, I have something of value, that there's something significant about me. And so identity is always at the foundational part of everybody's life. And so when we live in a society like ours, we're always really looking for, what are you good at? What's your passion? So a lot of times when people, you ask them, who are you? They say, well, I'm a lawyer or I'm a doctor or I'm a... I'm a teacher or whatever. So they define themselves by what they do, which isn't really who they are. It's just what they do. But in some ways, unless there's a a deeper foundational uh, identity uh, place, then it's going to be about what I do and what I'm passionate about and what I like. So I have a three-year-old adopted granddaughter who actually listened to me in the last service, and I talked about her, so I'm probably going to have to Give her a gift. but uh, <laughs> So she, she's a treasure to us. We, we FaceTime with her every day. She calls me Pop Pop. I love it when she calls me that. I run up the stairs to catch the FaceTime and all that kind of stuff. And so the other day, my daughter called and said, you got to hear this. And so this little three-year-old granddaughter goes, I want to be a firefighter. She had seen a fire truck and she got all excited. Now, when she says it, it sounded like I want to be a firefighter, but (laughs) I'm pretty sure that would be fun too. (laughs) Firefighter, she said, you know, it's so funny. So, we we immediately, Lisa turns to Amazon, (laughs) finds a firefighter suit for her, a megaphone, an axe, I hope it's fake. And then got her a fire truck for her birthday. Okay, I mean, so we're, I have no idea if she's going to be a firefighter or not when she grows up, but she's excited. So we're, we're enabling her passion. And I signed Lisa up for financial peace because Amazon, (laughs) Amazon has all my money now. I can't boast in riches. Amazon has them. All right, so, you know, what what we're talking about here, particularly as parents, and you're trying to help steer your kids and guide them, and about the best you can do is say, you're good at this, or you're happy about this, or you're passionate about this. And so what we're trying to do is help them find their identity, and what often happens is they begin to find their identity in what they do and what they have. Because that's basically what God is speaking. 2,600 years ago, he's speaking. He said, my people's identity is found in this, their riches. Their identity is found in their success. They think because they're successful, they're unique and they have worth and they have value and they have meaning. And then he says, some of them find their identity and their wisdom. What he means by this is science and 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 teaching, and philosophy, and religion, and engineering. They know how things work, and so now they think they don't need me because they know. he says, some of them have found their identity there. And then he says, some have found their identity in their beauty, in their strength, in their attractiveness. You see, when a fragmented culture happens, then all that matters is, am I pretty enough to have sex? Am I attractive enough that people want me? And so everything begins to be about, am I, am I muscular enough? Am I, do I have the right look? Do I have the right power? Do I have enough fame? Can I attract people? And so now my identity is based on what I look like, how much power I have. And God says, let those who boast not boast in those things. Now, he's really talking about formation of identity what he's saying here and this is 2600 years ago this was written and he what he's saying here is people are people in every generation and he's saying this you form your identity by two things what you praise and what praises you so he uses a word here when he says let not the rich boast or the wise or the The strong So He uses the word "hallelujah." Here, now he's saying he's saying whatever gets your hallelujah, and whatever draws a hallelujah to you, is what will form your identity. Now, those of you who know the word "hallelujah," you usually know it from the 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 joining together of "hallelujah" and "yah," right? Hallelujah, which is I get my identity, I give my worth, I give my praise, I boast in Yahweh. See, hallelujah says that where I'm, I'm drawing my hallelujah from and where I'm giving my hallelujah is the glory and the majesty and the ultimacy of God. But you can have a hallelujah without a hallelujah. So the hallelujah my riches I hallelujah I put my worth in I give my praise to the fact that I'm successful I give my praise to the fact that I'm better than other people that I have more riches than other people I hallelujah riches which really means I hallelujah me or I, I'm a scientist. I have knowledge. I'm a philosopher. A religious expert. I'm a, I'm, I, you know, I'm a teacher of knowledge and wisdom. And I hallelujah, wisdom. No, I hallelujah, me, and my abilities, and my understanding, and my knowledge, and my communication. Oh. I hallelujah beauty. I hallelujah strength, attractiveness, power, fame. I hallelujah. No, again, I'm hallelujahing me. You see, you don't have a consistent, you don't have a meaningful identity if you hallelujah you. You only do so if you hallelujah. All right, that was pretty good, and none of you even. I mean, I don't need the hallelujah I just need a little bit of breathing or something (laughs) are you tracking with me in this do you not understand your whole life your whole life when you were a little kid you were giving the hallelujah and you were trying to figure out how to receive the hallelujah so if you were great at school they hallelujah your grades if you were great at home cleaning up and your mommy's little helper and daddy's little worker, you had they hallelujah your sonship or your daughtership. If, if you were a sports person, if you were an athlete, they hallelujah your prowess on the field or at on the court or whatever it might be. And you said, oh, I must be somebody because that's where I get my hallelujah. Or you looked at people. And you said, oh, I want to be like them. I give them my hallelujah. So for me growing up, it was always athletes. It was always baseball and tennis and golf and football. And so I looked and said, they're praiseworthy. I want to be one of them. But what happens when you're not? Now am I nothing because I'm not one of them? Or for me, I loved music. I loved those bands where those guys had long, perfect hair. I hallelooed them. But I couldn't grow their hair because mine came out in a fro that went way up top. Tall and crazy. I even straightened it one time and it still wouldn't go long. So I couldn't be a, I couldn't be a heavy metal band. I couldn't be a, a hair band. I couldn't be any of those things that I hallelooed. You see, in many of us, we hallelujah things we could never be. So we must be less. Because if they were worthy of the hallelujah, I must not be. And so identity... Come on, I can't say it a whole lot better than that. Are you hearing me? See, 2,600 years ago, God said, what you form your identity will be formed on what you decide is worthy of praise... And what you say brings you praise. And somehow if you don't live up to that, or even it might be even more dangerous if you do. Because then you'll believe you've arrived. Now, I would say one of the worst things that can be said to anybody is you have potential. Because then you got to live up to the potential. And what happens if you don't? Say they say to you, you're going to be the next great teacher, the next great doctor. You're going to be the next great lawyer. And you're just Okay. So instead of enjoying the life you did have, you're always regretting the life you could have had and didn't. Are you hearing this? You see, the reason this taps in so deeply is God made us with a real emotional need for approval. As a matter of fact, you could actually say that the hallelujah is for applause, the longing for applause. Now, some of you might say to me, I don't care about applause. You know, I don't want people's applause. But have you noticed? That in either your personality or in your brokenness, you hate, cannot stand, cannot take criticism. That if someone criticizes you, you don't just hear them saying you did this wrong. You hear them saying something's wrong with you. And it goes right to identity. There are some of us who criticize and say, okay, I'll, I'll change that. Some people, you criticize them about anything and they will just collapse because now you have spoken to their identity. That's the same issue. That's the fear that you won't have the hallelujah. These are identity issues, and identity is spiritual. It is so significant that I had you read verses 21 and 22, not just 23 and 24. When I was a kid, I memorized this, this passage in Jeremiah let not the let not the mighty man boast in his might the wise in his wisdom you know or the rich in their riches I I memorized that because they wanted me to boast in the Lord they taught me that as a kid but nobody taught me the two verses before it because can you imagine today we're teaching the children verse 21 there will be death in the windows and in the streets children will die young men will drop like dung in the field So they come up and say, Mommy, let me tell you my Bible verse. You're like, what's wrong with these people at Risen King teaching our kids these horrible, awful Bible verses? But you see, you don't understand 23 and 24 if you don't read 21 and 22. It is not just a self-help book. It's not just the issue of having a better you. When our identities are corrupted, and they are if they're based on riches, might, or our own wisdom. When our identities are corrupted, what happens, God says, is that then the rich will exploit the poor. The mighty will destroy the weak and oppress the weak. And those who think they're wise will treat those they think are fools as if they are nothing whatsoever. And that is what causes death in the streets. Injustice, unrighteousness flows out of identity. Now, a simple illustration of this. I love to read Winston Churchill biographies. He's, he's one of the most interesting people. And, and he's a jerk in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the stories that caught my attention, and they brought it out in one of the movies of his life, he's, he's angry with his valet with his servant, and he said, you're being rude to me. And the valet says to him, well, sir, you were rude to me. I'm just kind of responding to your rudeness. Churchill walks away and he says, but I'm a great man. I don't have to apologize for my rudeness. You understand what happens if you form your identity on your power, Or your riches. Or what you think is your wisdom. You don't develop in other areas. And nobody else matters but you. What is Churchill really saying? He's saying hallelujah me. And so whatever else I do doesn't matter. I hope you're hearing this. Because what God did when he gave these verses. When he gave this prophecy. He's saying because of the issues of corrupt identity. My people are going to die. You understand? You And your identity will be passed down from one generation to the next. The corruption in you will be magnified in the next generation. These issues of identity are not simply little self-help books that you go and try to get to be a better you. This is an issue of spiritual importance and urgency. Are you hearing me in this? So what happens, I mean, think about it for a minute, just... Just the issue of building your life on these three things. Have you ever known anybody who's rich enough? I've never met anybody. I mean, there, when I was a kid, there were no billionaires, and soon there will be Forrest Gump Gozillionaires. I mean, it's 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 incredible how many billionaires, and yet still it's not enough. Or we have more knowledge now, more wisdom, more technology. I, We live in a space-age world. The only thing I'm disappointed is we don't have flying cars. The Jetsons, you know, I wanted to live like the Jetsons. Um, But more knowledge, and yet poverty is still rampant, uh, injustice, racism. All these things are still just as real as ever. So the same, you know, look at when people rely on their beauty. They rely on their strength, their fame. They rely, it's never enough. Never enough. Think about that with me. Well, why is that so? Because it's an issue of sin. And, and one of the best descriptions that helps you understand why this is a sin issue is the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Now, some people don't like him because he, he wasn't necessarily in an evangelical Christian camp. But in his book called The Sickness Under Death, I think he defines sin in both a biblical and a way that speaks to us in our modern situation. He says this, Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from him. Now, Tom Keller likes this quote, and so he goes a little deeper on it. He says, Everyone gets their identity, their sense of being distinct and valuable from somewhere or something. In other words, it's really important you get this. You didn't get your identity from you. Someone else basically formed you. And you have to decide if what's been formed is what you want to keep. So Kierkegaard asserts that human beings were made not only to believe in God in some general way, but to love him supremely. Now, this, this is so important that you get this. I, I don't know all of you in this room. But I get asked all the time, or I'm told all the time by people who say, Well, I love God. Or I believe in God. This is, what, this is why this is so important. See, you could believe in God, and you could say you love God, but it'd be a very general kind of love. If, if all you have is a general kind of love for God, you are actually still living an independent life from him. You're acknowledging that he exists, that there is the concept of love, but you've not come into the place where you're resting your life and your identity in his love for you. So we are called to love God supremely, center our lives on him above anything else and build our very identity on him. Anything other than this is sin. So sin is not just doing, just the doing of bad things. Now, actually Keller gets uh, criticized for this and it's so interesting to me. That there are a whole lot of Christians, or people who say they're Christians, that all they see is that sin is breaking God's law. So they, they they try to figure out what is the law, what are the things I have to do, and what are the things I have to not do, and then they try to add up well and say, you know, sin is breaking God's law. Well, Keller's not saying that sin isn't, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with breaking law, the law of God. He says so much more than that. really what we're doing is saying, why is breaking the law so attractive to us? Why is it so hard for us to do the things that he asks us to do in obedience and cheerfulness and love? Well, it's because he's not the center of all things in our identity. So it's not just doing the bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. So that could be your family, your job, your success, these I mean, think about it for a minute. Riches are not evil. Wisdom is certainly not evil. Having strength is not evil. But when you make riches, wisdom, and strength ultimate, now it's sin. Now, if that's the basis of your identity, of your uniqueness, and your significance, now those three have become idols, and God cannot give success to your idols. So it's a sense of, it's seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. Now, what I want, what I want to do is, is to take this just a, a step further with you. You see, in some ways, you don't know what's central until what's central is taken away from you, or when things don't go the way you want it to go. You can say all day, God, you're central, but When he touches your family and you are anxious and you're overwhelmed and you can't take it and you lose your faith and you lose your ability to pray, then you're showing my family wasn't just a good thing. It had become an ultimate thing. Or when your job or your your success of your job or whatever it is begins to be threatened and you go, God, this is everything to me, then you're realizing my whole identity, my worth, my value is based on my work, on my success, in my performance. See, it's not till it's taken away that do you really recognize how addicted to it you are. So what happened to me, this is very personal to me, is that as I came into ministry, I started ministering pretty young, and as I came into ministry, ministry became a mistress to me because it, it, it fed my ego, it fed my sense of applause and approval and all of these attention-getting things. And as that was happening, I had no idea that it was sin. I was deceived into thinking, I'm just serving you. You've got to give me success. And so as I walk that walk, he, he is so good. You see, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He won't let you live one more minute in fantasy than, than, uh, than possible. He's going to destroy your sense of, of, of deception about yourself. And when he does, he's not doing it to, because he's angry with you. He's doing it to heal you. So he destroyed me in ministry. And I, I had to go to him and say, Lord, I've had my identity as a minister, as a pastor. I have no identity And then he established me that my whole worth and my whole value was not found in what I could do, but it was found in my union with Christ, that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. That's where my worth is. That's where my value is. That's where my security is. And so I settled that issue. And as soon as I settled that issue, I got tested. The church that I was a part of, I began to teach this identity teaching that I'm doing with you today. And they said, we want to be rid of you. Go away from us. And they, tr- they tried to destroy me. And then the denomination I was a part of, they decided I was no longer fit to be in ministry if I believed these things. And so <laughs> these really um, smart people uh, who decided to get rid of me decided on Christmas Eve to get rid of me. Can you imagine? I don't. Their names were Scrooge and Marley, I believe. But uh, <laughs> I mean, to think that it was a wise thing to take away a man's job, his livelihood, his career, on Christmas Eve. But all they were they wanted was to get rid of me so badly. And I left that office, having lost my ministry, having lost my credentials, having lost my career. And I went in my car, and I heard the voice of the Lord. Now, you see. I, I was a Presbyterian. We weren't supposed to hear the voice of the Lord. And so I hear the voice of the Lord, and he said this, the Spirit said this to me, what has changed? What has changed? And I thought for a minute, and he asked me again, tell me, what has changed? And in that moment, like a spiritual backbone came up in me. And I said, absolutely nothing that matters to me. Because I am still your child. I am still in you. No counsel on earth can take you away from me or me from you. What I have lost must not matter that much because you're supreme to me. Now, again, I tell you, it's unusual when Presbyterians are hearing the voice of the Lord. But that morning I had heard it once already. And here is what he said. And I knew I was going to lose everything that day. You cannot put new wine in an old wine skin. And so the choice really was: Do you want the new wine, or do you want the old wine scan? And I said, Lord, I've tasted the new wine. I can't go back. And so you begin to see. So you begin to realize when you lose things, what is truly ultimate to you. You see, if what you lost is ultimate, you'll never get over it. But if Jesus is ultimate, then you can lose everything else and you still have your treasure. And you still have your identity. Are you hearing me? So the problem with basing your identity on the hallelujah or the applause of others is that the outer applause never becomes permanent inner applause. As a matter of fact, in, in this life, it never sticks. Because this life, you don't get just one verdict, you get a verdict after a verdict after a verdict. I mean, how many of us graduated from one thing only to have people say, What are you going to do next? And then you're like, Oh gosh, I just finished this and I have to start all over again. I remember this one little kid who lived with us for a little while. He graduated from kindergarten. He goes, Woo, I'm glad that's over. I mean, you know, they had the big graduation at kindergarten. And he's like, "Whoo, I'm glad that's over. And his dad goes, you have 12 more years. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, it, in this life, it's like the verdict is never over. Even you get applause in one day. I, I, I want to make this really practical, personal to you. See, I don't know if any of the rest of you this, but I've tried for years to get Lisa to be on a point system with me. Okay, so when I do a good thing, I go, that's worth a point, right? You're putting that one in the bank. And she'll always look at me and go, the fact you told me it's a point takes away any point. (laughs) You know, and whenever I screw up, I think I have all these points in the bank. She doesn't remember a single one of them. (laughs) So whatever gave me applause the other day doesn't matter when I screw up today. Do you understand what I'm saying? Outer applause never becomes permanent inner applause, you know? And, and That need that I have for approval like that, for applause like that, for attention like that, is actually a manifestation that my ego is broken. Now, look, think about this with me. When a part of your body is screaming at you, it's not because it's healthy. When a part of your body is drawing ex- attention to itself, it's not because that part is healthy. I didn't get up this morning going, man, my elbow is functioning well. Look at that. <laughs> the only time you notice your elbow is when you bang it. Or when it's hurting from doing sports or something. And you're like, oh, my elbow hurts. You know, When it's working, you just... It's elbow. So the fact that your ego is being hurt all the time or you're offended or you're feeling criticized, or you're feeling, you know, less than secure, it's actually not, it's not a bad thing in a way. It's just telling you you need healing of your ego. And, and listen, a lot of us, what we do is we sophisticate this in so many ways, and we won't let God get at our ego because we have an unhealthy pride that protects us. So here's, here's the way that that manifests. You'll, you'll be hurt by someone's criticism or their attitude. Sometimes some of us can just get hurt by the nonverbal that someone's doing to us. Like some of you sleeping on me is really hurting my feelings right now. <laughs> You're not saying anything, but I'm hurt. All right, so, so you understand, like... We look at them and we say to them, you're hurting my feelings. But really, we're not hurt. Our feelings aren't hurt at all. Feelings don't get hurt. It's your ego. So we don't want to say, you hurt my ego. That sounds weak. So we say, oh, you hurt my feelings, which doesn't sound that strong either, to (laughs) tell you the truth. But we'll say that so that we can make them feel guilty or bad, never recognizing that God is even using those hurts to show us where we are hurting, where we need healing. And so what we need is a healed identity, a healed ego with a healthy sense of pride instead of the unhealthy protector of our broken ego. So what does this healthy healed identity look like well verse 24 says let him who boasts boast that he understands me listen in traditional culture and i've been in a lot of them the the idea of self esteem is you should have low self-esteem really in a traditional culture the higher your self-esteem the more they want to take you down because high self-esteem is what causes the problems in the world But in our modern culture, what does every educational philosophy say? We need to give our students high self-esteem and then we'll avoid crime and we'll do all of this. You know what the Bible says? Neither is going to solve the issue. The issue is only solved when you are no longer boasting in yourself and you're not boasting in your family, but you're boasting your hallelujah is in the Lord. And it's because you understand Him. Not because you know about Him, but because you've encountered Him. Because you've come to know who He really is and how much He really, really loves you. It's when you boast in Him that you no longer have to take so much notice of self. My friend Rob Reamer has a good saying. He says, you're making it too much about you. See, as long as you make it about you, you can't make it about Jesus. Jesus. I mean, some of us are like, oh, my life is so hard, it's so difficult, nothing ever works out for me. And if you listen and you should hear a voice saying, you're making an awful lot about you. You're not boasting in him, you're boasting in how hard your life is. You're saying, I have worth and value because I'm miserable. Because everything of me is a sacrifice for my kids and everything's a sacrifice for my church and everything's a sacrifice. See, when you're saying that, you're boasting in you. You're saying, hallelujah me. You'll never really have a healed ego until it's hallelujah. (laughs) See, what happens in verse 24, it's no longer your riches, no longer your might, no longer your... That personal possessive pronoun goes away. It's boasting in Him. Suddenly it's not about what I have or what I can do. It's not about my performance. It's not about my anything. The Apostle Paul was truly healed by Jeremiah's words because he applied them through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul loved the words of Jeremiah. He teaches on it in Corinthians and Galatians. In Corinthians he gives us, I think, one of the most perfect pictures of how the ego and the identity gets healed. He says, I do not let anyone else judge me. I don't let anyone else judge me. I don't listen to their judgment of me. Now, if you stop there, a modern therapist or a modern secular psychologist would say, great, that's it. Don't let your identity be connected to the approval or applause of others. Just let it be you. Do you understand how ridiculous that is? See, if if I can't find the applause out in the world, if their opinion is too high or their standards are too high and I can't perform in a way to meet their standards, then do you think it's going to help you to lower your standards and say, "Well, at least I meet my standards." When all the while you know you suck. I mean your heart will know. You could say, "Well, you know, I don't really have to get up in the morning and go to work, but yeah, you got to eat and you got to you got to have some useful, you know, way with your life and all this stuff. Your your if your conscience in some ways isn't saying to you, you're not meeting your own standards, you're not listening. Or another a therapist I heard of a therapy one time where the therapist said, "You don't feel good about yourself, so imagine yourself Becoming the best version of yourself. What are you passionate about? You know, maybe, maybe you sit there and say, Well, I love music, so you picture yourself at the pinnacle of your musical career. Or maybe you want to be a pitcher for the Yankees or the Mets, and they'd actually win a game. And, 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 <laughs> and um, you know, you do all of this, you know, you're doing all of this stuff, and you're picturing it. Guess what? At the end of the picture, you know what you're going to realize? I'll never be that. How can that help you feel better about yourself? Suddenly, you can't even live up to your own fantasies. You can't live up to the standards, so you have to lower them. That doesn't make you feel better. And then you have these fantasies that you're pitching, and you will I'm 60 years old, I'm never pitching for the Yankees. You understand? I mean, you've got to hear what Paul says. I don't let others judge me, but I don't judge myself either. You see, it's no longer an issue of self-esteem, high or low. It's an issue of whose applause, whose hallelujah do I live for? I, Paul, I love this way of saying what he said in 1 Corinthians 4. I don't care what you think, and I don't care what I think. I only care what the Lord thinks. Now, some of you, stay with me. Are you tracking with me on this? This last part's really important, Okay. Some of you would say, oh, no, if only God's opinion of me is the only one that matters. I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'm broken. I have all of these issues. I don't live up to to the issue of the sin that Kierkegaard and Keller are talking about. See, this is why you have to have the gospel of Jesus Christ in this. Do you understand The way that God looks at you, the way that Jesus looks at you is so powerful and so life-changing for you. You see, the verdict that you deserve, the verdict on your life, the final verdict is not going to be you did some good things, you did some bad things. The verdict on your life that you deserve is depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Depart from me, you evildoer. That is the only verdict that any of us ever deserved. But the one who is really somebody, the one who is the darling of heaven, the one who's the very Son of God, chose to have my and your deserved verdict pronounced on Him. He's the one that heard the Father say, depart from me, you evildoer. The Son of God heard that. So that now instead of hearing my just verdict, I hear the grace verdict. The verdict that Jesus deserves is now the verdict that the Spirit speaks to my heart. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. There are many Christians who mistakenly are believing that because of what they're trying to do now and the good they're trying to make up for their bad now is why they will hear it. You'll never hear it for that. You will only hear it because you are in Jesus and He will treat you like you are Jesus. So what Jesus hears now, well done, you hear. What Jesus experiences from the Father, acceptance, love, joy is now yours inside your heart continually. Even when you screw up, Even when you say, Lord, I don't want to live for you, He's still going, but you're my son. You're my daughter. I see you in Christ. Because it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. When you get caught, you don't repent. You just regret. He wants you to know. Look, when He said, understand and know me. Do you know what the first word He says? You need to know my said. You need to know my covenantal love. My unconditional love. My love that's given its blood for you. My love that will never let you go. My kindness towards you. That's the thing that he's speaking in the heart. And you might, you know, you could say to me, how do I know that he loves me? And that would be a good question. Okay, so God chose Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. This son didn't come until he was 100 years old. Then the son grew up a bit and God said to Abraham, I want you to offer your son, your only son to me. And Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain and he puts him on the altar and he has the knife and he's about to kill his only son and sacrifice to God. God stops him. And here's what the Lord said. Abraham, and it's a powerful word. Abraham, I know that you love me because you have not held back your only son. Look. Look. That same thing happened on the cross. Here's what Paul says. I don't boast in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what is he saying? It's because God took the very knife. And and you and I can look at the cross and say, God, I know that you love me because you did not hold back your only son. And so Paul says, I began to boast, but I boast in the cross. I boast in the Hesed. I boast in the covenantal love of God. I boast in Him. Now, why is boasting in Him such a way to get out of self-esteem issues and get into a foundational identity and cured ego? Because the more you boast in Him and the more you hallelujah Him, actually, the more you lift yourself up. Now, He's worthy of praise because of who He is. But you see, when you see how great He is, when you see how awesome He is, then you're also saying that awesome God, that great God loves me. So He has all the worth in the world. He loves me. I must have worth too. So the more you praise Him, the more you lift yourself up. The more you boast in Him, the more you're lifted up. See, as He's being lifted up, you're being lifted up. Because if the one who has worth loves you, then you must have worth. Will you stand with me? Are you tracking with me in this? I'm telling you this might be one of the most important talks I've ever given. Because what happens, if you've built your life on a corrupt identity, it's going it's to fall apart. It's going to become twisted. It's going to become selfish. But if you build on a foundation of being deeply rooted in Christ then everything you build will become eternal, lasting, meaningful, consistent. I want, to, I want to read one thing to you before. Well, two things. So when we boast in Him, we begin to see how much He absolutely loves. Lewis said it this way. It's enough to raise your thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing. Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. And then he says this, The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall find approval, shall please God to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. You understand, some of you weren't here at the first, but when the word of the Lord came to a prophet, the Hebrew word there is burden, the burden of the Lord. And so what you see with Jeremiah, because the people of God have not learned to live in the pleasure of God, Jeremiah has to carry all his days the weeping of God. He has to carry the grief of God, the heartbrokenness of a husband whose wife has cheated on him. But what Lewis is saying here, through Jesus and through his sacrifice, by you beginning to listen to the burden of God in your heart, What you're hearing is his applause, his approval. What Lewis calls the divine accolade. You may not believe this, but by faith, every single minute of every day, the Father is speaking through the Spirit into your heart saying, you're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. You bring me pleasure. And so when you hear that and you begin living out of that identity... You don't want to do things that wouldn't please Him. But you do it not because of, you have to. You do it because of who you are. Your performance begins to be an expression of your God-given identity. Would you receive that with me? Would you, would you close your eyes? I, I, I know this is a little strange, but I have a vision that underneath your feet, coming out of your feet, are roots. And you get to decide where those roots go. And I'm I'm asking you today, take up any roots you've had in your success, in your riches, in your accomplishments. Any reliance you've had on being smart or knowledgeable or understanding things or teaching things. Any roots that you've had in your beauty or your, your strength or your fame or your power. That you would no longer give the hallelujah to those things. But that today your roots would go deep into who you are in Christ. That you who boast will boast in the cross of Jesus. That you will say with Abraham, I know that you love me because you did not hold back your only son. Would you say it with me? Would you make this a declaration? Lord, I receive... deep roots roots. in your hesed, your your covenantal love, your your unfailing love, your kindness towards me. me. I know I have worth because you are great. great. I boast in you. I boast in in your cross. I lift lift you up. I up. I I renounce riches Wisdom, wisdom, strength, strength as, my as my identity. I cut off those roots, off those roots. In, Jesus name. in Jesus' name. Now the Lord may show you where you're connected. You may challenge. You may let a challenge come. I'm asking that today you go deep in your identity in Christ. That I don't boast in riches. I don't boast in wisdom or my own strength but I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. I boast that I know you, Lord, and I understand your loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today.